Martin Rees, it is absolutely fantastic. A privilege, an honour to have you with me for 20 Questions With. You are the Astronomer Royal. I believe you're the 15th Astronomer Royal since that title came into existence in 1675. So that's quite ex extraordinary. It's an amazing role to have. Before we start the 20 Questions, just explain to us what, what it means these days to be the Astronomer Royal. Well, it doesn't mean what it used to mean because uh, uh, astronomy is, of course, the first topic to require big equipment and the Greenwich Observatory was set up in 1675 for navigation and timekeeping etc and the guy who directed it was called the Astronomer Royal and that remained the role of the Astronomer Royal until the 1960s when it became possible to have telescopes on better less cloudy sites than uh, Greenwich and then the title was kept but it became a sort of only title like poet laureate uh, given to a senior academic working in astronomy you've got so many titles i couldn't possibly list them well i could possibly list them all but it would take a long time but you were of course knighted and now you're lord reese but if i may i'll call you martin i think you're more comfortable with that Indeed, I am, yes. Mm -hmm. And one other thing to say before we start is that I discovered from my cousin, who's a massive anagram fan, that astronomer is an anagram of moon starer. <laughs> yes. Mm -hmm. Did you know that? I didn't know that, no, no. Mm. <laughs> I, I, I thought it was rather neat. Okay, mm. so let's start the 20 questions down. My, my first question to you is, why does astronomy matter? For those who aren't fully acquainted with the role of an astronomer, explain its importance, and perhaps also while you describe it, make it absolutely clear that it's got very little to do, if anything, to do with astrology. Right, well, let me first say astronomers are not astrologers. They're pretty rotten forecasters, though not quite as bad as economists. But of course, astronomy was um, one of the first scientists, going back to the Babylonians and then the, the Greeks, of course. And um, it was useful because it was uh, able to keep time, keep the calendar and predict eclipses, etc. It's the oldest science, except maybe for medicine. And I would claim perhaps the first that did more good than harm. And it goes all the way back, of course, to the Babylonian calendar um, and uh, uh, for navigation which was the reason why the Royal Greenwich Observatory was set up. When we hear expressions in astrology, like the planets are aligning and feeling I don't know, certain gravitational forces, mm. is that all sort of fun and nonsense? Or is, is there any, any truth or any fact underpinning any of that? I don't think there are any facts, except that the, um, the stars do matter. In fact, uh, one of the most exciting things in modern astronomy is the realisation that we are more intimately connected with the stars than even the astrologers thought in that every atom in our bodies was forged from pristine hydrogen in an ancient star which lived and died somewhere in our Milky Way more than five billion years ago and uh, uh, our sun condensed from gas um, already contaminated by the debris from uh, stars that had lived and died and exploded and uh, this is a wonderful story indicating our links to the cosmos and how intimate they are and this was worked out pioneered by my predecessor Fred Hoyle in the uh, uh, 1950s and uh, this tells us that we are literally the ashes from long dead stars or if you're less romantic we're the uh, nuclear waste from the fuel that made stars shine but uh, when you see an exploding star then uh, uh, that's going to create material for new planets and new life. 
but just because, and this is a, a sub-question, so it doesn't count as one of our 20, but just because stars matter in the way that you say they do, that doesn't mean that star signs are, are of any significance. Oh, no, no, not at all, because this, uh, the, um, the, the stars around us are, of course, in a three-dimensional pattern, some a long way away and bright, some closer in and faint, and it's hard to decide but just by looking. So the um, constellations are just patterns on the sky, not even... It, patterns in space now that we've got that out of the way let's yeah. get into the meat of, of some of the really important ideas theories principles in astronomy talk to us briefly if you would about about the multiverse what that means where, where we are in understanding it whether it can ever be proven how important the study of very very small things in physics is or isn't to the understanding of something as extraordinarily massive as <laughs> as the multiverse Give, give us a beginner's guide to the multiverse and your views on it. Well, l l let me say the multiverse is a speculative idea, uh, which is still very mysterious. So let me start closer to the beginning of our understanding and indeed the beginning of our universe. We've realised um, since the 1960s uh, that uh, our cosmos consists of uh, galaxies like our Milky Way, each containing several billion stars and uh, uh, we can now, with our big telescopes, see billions of those out to great distances. And when we look far away, we're looking at objects whose light set out a long time ago, so we're actually observing the past. And uh, we've really learned from uh, evidence like that and many other kinds of evidence that our universe is expanding, everything's getting further and further apart, and was once squeezed together to very high densities, like the inside of a star. And uh, we can amazingly now say what happened right back to when the universe had been expanding for a tiny fraction of a second. Uh, it was then at many billions of degrees temperature. And I would say that we can talk about the um, universe from a billionth, billionth of a second after the Big Bang with as much confidence as a geologist can talk about the history of the Earth. And this is an amazing uh, advance in astronomy and cosmology over the last 50 years. Now, the billionth of a second right at the beginning is unfortunately very, very important indeed, um, because uh, uh, the question of, of why the universe is expanding, why it contains the mixture of um, uh, atoms and radiation which we observe, and why it uh, is able to condense uh, into galaxies, all those questions can only be answered on the basis of things that happened in this first tiny, tiny fraction of a second. And these are still pretty uncertain. The reason for that is that as we extrapolate back, everything gets hotter and denser. But when we get back into the first microsecond or nanosecond, every particle is moving around with more energy than we can create even in the biggest particle accelerators like the Large Hadron Collider at CERN. So in the first tiny fraction of a second, we lose our foothold in experiments testable on Earth. And so the physics becomes more speculative. So um, it's, it's great that uh, from... When I was a student, it wasn't clear whether there was a Big Bang at all. And now we can talk seriously about it right back to the when it was a nanosecond old. Uh, and that brings into focus a new set of questions. Uh, what happened right at, at the very beginning? And I think all we can say now is that there are lots of theoretical ideas, but they're not battle tested because we can't uh, reproduce those conditions in the lab and we can't really independently test their validity. But uh, we do believe that key process happened when the universe was a trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second old. And there are lots of theories about that. But then I'm now going to answer your question, the multiverse. Uh, the uh, 
um, idea of um, the very early stages of the Big Bang, uh, of course, is uncertain because we don't know quite what the relevant physics was. But for some assumptions about the relevant physics, um, if you get one Big Bang, you get many. And so uh, our Big Bang would not be the entirety of physical reality. There'd be other Big Bangs as well. And uh, uh, this is a possibility. They would be beyond our observational horizon, but they would still exist. Um, and um, so we can speculate about them. And the other issue is that if they exist, would they be governed by the same laws? Because, of course, the reason we can do astronomy at all is that the laws of nature, laws of electricity and gravitation and the properties of atoms and things, they're the same on the Earth as they are in a distant star, which we can analyze the light from distant stars and see what the atoms are made of, etc. So the laws of physics seem to be the same in all parts of the universe we can see. Uh, but there may have been other big bangs, and these are not directly observable. But if they exist, then there are reason to suspect that they may be governed by different laws. They might have a different strength of gravity. Um, they might have different nuclear physics. They might, for instance, not allow all the chemical elements of the periodic table, like carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, to exist. might be just hydrogen. And those other universes would not be conducive to the emergence of life and complexity. And so uh, we may be in an ensemble of universes, but we're not in a typical member of the ensemble. We're in some perhaps rather propitious one where the laws allow the amazing evolution of complexity which has happened around us to occur. And some of the other universes may be sterile or stillborn. Some might be even better than ours, of course. We don't know. How much certainty is there that we did come into being as a consequence of a Big Bang? Is there any doubt about there having been a Big Bang at all? And w whether or not there's any doubt, assuming there has been, a, there was a Big Bang, how can you help people like me, who are not very good at physics at school, to conceptualise or even begin to understand what happened before the Big Bang? Well, let me just uh, say that I think we have confidence in a Big Bang in the sense of a hot, dense state where everything that we now see began. And uh, uh, we can imagine extrapolating back our present universe to a time when it was squeezed to a much sm smaller volume and a much higher density, and uh, when every particle had as much energy as we can produce in a big accelerator. And that's when the universe had been expanding for just a nanosecond. Before that time, uh, the physics was so extreme that we have no foothold in experiments. And so it's all uncertain. But um, I think to imagine the, the universe expanding, to just think of a, a, a little box full of material and imagine that it started off very compact and dense and then expanded. Um, but uh, um, you ask about what happened before the Big Bang. Uh, the answer there is we have got no idea. One possibility is that we can't any longer... Uh, think of three dimensions of space and one of time. Uh, it could be that those dimensions get mixed up. And if that's the case, there are two possibilities. One is that uh, asking about what happened before the Big Bang is like asking what happens if you go north from the North Pole. Somehow it closes up in a consistent way. That's one idea. But the other possibility, uh, which is that some kind of theory called string theory is correct. And that suggests that if we look at space on a very tiny scale, then what we think of as a point in our three-dimensional space is actually a tightly wrapped origami in five extra dimensions, but it's tightly wrapped on a scale even smaller 
than an atom or an atomic nucleus. And this is a possible uh, physics which would allow us to understand gravity in a deeper sense than we now can, but it's still speculative. So we just don't know what the physics was that applied right at the beginning of the universe. We don't even know whether it was appropriate to think in terms of three dimensions of space and one of time or something more complicated. But I think um, uh, rather than despairing about how difficult it is, I think it's rather amazing uh, that uh, our brains, which haven't really changed very much since our ancestors roamed the African savanna, have been able to uh, contemplate the atom understand atomic physics and quantum theory and also uh, make some sense at least of the vast cosmos and um, i think we're just at the beginning of that understanding and uh, of course the question is how far we'll get because it's quite possible in principle that there are many deep aspects of reality which are just uh, too difficult for human brains to grasp just as quantum theory is too hard for a monkey to grasp. Might it be that not that so much that we can't grasp them, but that the evidence is simply out of our reach? Um, yes, th that's another possibility. It could be that the evidence is out of our reach um, and uh, we will never have more than speculations about these things. Yeah. How much of your time, fifth question, fifth question proper, how much of your time as an astronomer is taken up with the theory of science and how how much of it is taken up by scientific observation? Well, I think um, uh, I'm someone who's worked mainly on theory and interpretation, but the astronomical enterprise, of course, involves lots of different skills. Um, and I think it's fair to say that uh, um, uh, armchair theory has achieved as it were, 5% of the progress, but 95% is owed to the advance in instrumentation and equipment. The fact that we now have vastly more powerful telescopes, the fact that we can have telescopes in space, uh, which can um, uh, observe kinds of radiation like the infrared and ultraviolets and X-rays, which can't penetrate down to the ground, etc. So what has um, transformed astronomy and cosmology in the last 50 years and I've been lucky to be around for those 50 years, has been the expansion in the range of observations and the sensitivity of observations. And so it's the people who do those who are uh, the dominant parts of our community. And the number of people who are just doing a theory and interpretation is much smaller. But there's been a very important uh, advance in the last 20 years in particular uh, on the theoretical side and that's the ability to do computer simulations. Because, of course, um, uh, we, we think that in, this, in the sky we can look at distant galaxies, some of the galaxies are colliding with each other, some stars are exploding, etc. Um, and we'd love to be able to do experiments on them, but we can't clearly do experiments in the real universe. But we can now do experiments in the virtual world of our computer. Uh, we can uh, put into the computer the physics of a star or, and... Uh, and evolve it and see if it explodes. We can imagine what, what, what would happen uh, if galaxies fall together. The same in spirit as a meteorologist working out how the clouds will evolve. And so uh, by the use of ever more powerful computers, we've been able to simulate uh, a lot of uh, uh, phenomena in the universe, um, galaxies forming, uh, galaxies colliding, stars exploding, black holes forming and stuff falling into them, all those things uh, we can now simulate with more accuracy than just arm-waving simple pe pencil and paper calculations. And it's only because of that complementary advance in uh, 
the technology of computing this has allowed us to interpret the much greater volume of data we get to take another example uh, of the sheer volume of data there's a spacecraft called gaia which was launched by the european space agency which has got data on two billion stars in our galaxy and uh, uh, obviously if you've got a computer you can look for all kinds of correlation about their motions and their ages and their compositions etc which you could never do uh, so you can now use computers to uh, not only simulate parts of the universe but to analyze the much greater volume and greater precision of data that we're getting talk to us about black holes as i understand it we don't have to fear black holes do we and when it comes to conceptualizing really difficult things we were talking about the big bang a moment ago help us to understand how it is that a small black hole a black hole say the size of an atom can have the mass of a large mountain if i'm right in that yes um uh, well, well uh, let, let me say what black holes are um they're entities where a lot of material that may have been once in a star or in a planet has contracted and got very very dense and of course uh, if if something gets denser and keeps the same mass then the gravity on its surface goes up and the escape velocity goes goes up it would be harder to to a fire rocket to escape from something which is very compact and dense and if you imagine something collapsing so much that not even light can escape then uh, it will be a dark object and indeed 200 years ago um, there were speculations about about this um, uh, what would happen if um, uh, light couldn't escape and uh, um, it was speculated then by one or two astronomers that maybe the heaviest object in the universe might be invisible because their gravity is so strong it tugs back the light even well of course um, uh, that, that's thinking of um, of light like ballistic particles in Newton's theory and of course we now know that we have Einstein's theory which uh, uh, has distinctive predictions uh, but essentially it suggests that if something does collapse then it forms a sort of surface from within which nothing can escape so things can fall in to the center uh, but uh, nothing can escape so it is a, essentially a dark object and um, it was speculated that some stars when they run out of fuel may explode but others may implode and leave black hole remnants and we now uh, know this does happen we also know that there are big black holes um, weighing as much as millions or even billions of stars which lurk in the centers of galaxies there's, a, there's one weighing about four million times as much as the sun in the center of our ga galaxy our milky way and there's some much bigger than that in other galaxies and one of the main things i worked on is um how we can um, uh, interpret these and what the phenomena would be if you have um, a, a black hole in the center of galaxies and gas swirls down into it, like going down a plug hole and stars get torn apart if the tidal force gets, gets great. So uh, we do know that these black holes exist and um, that they produce some of the most exciting phenomena we observe in the universe, uh, the brightest sources, etc. cetera. Uh, now, uh, what, what about small black holes? Um, the uh, the reason that they're massive is that gravity, although it's a universal force, is actually a very weak force on the atomic scale. If if you if you have um, uh, uh, say two protons, that's two two particles, um, two hydrogen atoms, um, then uh, uh, they are held together by electric forces. And uh, if you're a chemist and you think about molecules, which are just lots of atoms swirling around, 
you don't need to worry about the gravity between those because it's actually nearly 40 powers of 10 weaker than the electric forces. Um, so it's only when you have a large mass that you have to worry about gravity because if you have something which is large, then electric forces are positive and negative and they cancel out. But the gravitational force, as it were, always has the same sign and just builds up. Uh, so as you imagine building bigger and bigger uh, structures, you know, so, um, grains of sand, sugar lumps, human beings, asteroids, planets, and stars, uh, then only when you get up to something the size of a planet does gravity really become important. And, uh, and that, that means that uh, uh, chemists don't need to worry about, uh, about gravity within a single, single atom um, or normal scale. Uh, but of course, uh, the converse of that is that um, if you were to imagine uh, taking something and squeezing it down very small, then you could make a black hole that was much less massive than a star. Um, but because of this factor nearly 10 to the 40, then in order to produce, um, as you say, a black hole the size of an atom, um, you would have to uh, squeeze into that microscopic dimension something as heavy as a mountain, which we can't do now. But of course, there is an interesting question, an interesting speculation that um, in the very, very early stages of the universe, uh, then the pressures were so colossal, the densities were so colossal. And so uh, some people speculate there could be so-called primordial mini black holes, uh, which are left over from a condition when everything was so dense that uh, gravity could uh, collapse something that was uh, only of microscopic size. But we don't need to fear them, these black holes. We're not going to be pulled into a black hole. No, no. Uh, only if we get too near. <laughs> um, the, uh, the films like Interstellar, of course, discuss that, that happening, but uh, uh, that's not for real. So, so we're not going to get too near. No, no, we're we're not. In fact, uh, our our Earth and our Sun will stay safely away from the black hole in the centre of the galaxy. It's always around it at a very great and safe distance. I'm curious to get a better understanding of planets, also exoplanets, and the possibility of life elsewhere in our universe. Explain to us what a planet is in the simplest form. Well, of course, traditionally in astronomy, uh, what was observed primarily were the planets in our solar system. It was realised that uh, uh, the stars were some background on the vault of heaven. No one really knew how far away they were. Uh, it wasn't clear until the mid-19th century that the stars were made of the same stuff as uh, as the Earth uh, and the, uh, the the planets. It was thought to be some sort of fifth essence different from Earth, air, fire and water. Um, but now we know that they're all made of the same stuff. Um, and of course, um, the motions of the planets were uh, studied from ancient times and uh, were the basis for realising that uh, Copernicus was right in saying that uh, uh, the Earth was a planet along with Venus, Mars, and Jupiter, going round the sun. And that uh, uh, it, that was the basic system, and, and uh, that's been worked out. And that's been part of the scientific consensus uh, since the um, 18th century anyway. Uh, but the, the planets, of course, are all very different. They've all been studied close up. Space probes have been sent, several to Mars, uh, and some to planets like Jupiter and Saturn, and their moons. And that's an important area of science, which is only uh, burgeoned when it's been possible to send robotic probes. Um, but one of the most exciting developments in astronomy, only in the last 20 or 25 years, has been realizing that most other stars 
are orbited by retinues of planets, just as the sun is orbited by the Earth and the other familiar planets. And um, this is a great triumph because if you look at a, a star, then the planets are literally millions of times fainter. If there were some aliens out there looking at our solar system, then the sun would look like an ordinary star and the planets would be much, much, much fainter. The Earth would be in Carl Sagan's nice phrase, a pale blue dot, very close in the sky to its star, our sun, but millions of times fainter. And it's very hard to detect it. You're looking for a far-flying extra searchlight, as it were. But this is now being done. And so we now know that most stars are orbited by retinues of planets. There's a great variety of them. There are some big planets like Jupiter going on tight orbits. But there are many planets which are rather like the Earth, basically, in the sense of um, being about the size of the Earth and being at a distance from their parent star such that the temperature would allow water to exist. If they're too close, the water boils away. If they're too far away, it stays frozen. And so these um, other Earths, as it were, are places uh, where the conditions were rather like on the young Earth, uh, with water existing and uh, gravity like on the Earth and the temperature uh, being roughly like the Earth's temperature um, from the star. Um, and then, of course, this raises the... Uh, fundamental question, would there be any life on them? And if if uh, people know I'm an astronomer, the first question they ask is, are we alone? It's the most fascinating question. And I think uh, um, we are a long way from answering that question. And that's because I'd like to say biology is a much harder subject than physics. Even the simplest insect is far more complicated with layer upon layer of structure than an atom or a star. And so we're only beginning in biology. But, but one thing which people aren't aware of, actually, is that although we're all familiar with Darwinian evolution, whereby over nearly four billion years, simple protozoa have evolved by natural selection into the marvelous biosphere we have around us and of which we're a part, the origin of life on Earth is still a mystery. No one knows what caused the transition from complex chemicals complex molecules, to the first uh, replicating, metabolizing entities we call alive. We don't know that. Um, and therefore, we don't know if it was a rare fluke or if it was something which we would expect to have happened on these other exoplanets where the conditions were like those on the young Earth. Uh, but what's very exciting is that uh, scientists are now motivated to think harder about the origin of life on Earth. And there's a possibility of, uh, within the next 10 or 20 years at least, getting some evidence for whether there is life or vegetation on any of these planets around other stars. The, the challenge is essentially a simple one, that they're very, very faint. And uh, if you want to analyze their light uh, and see what, what it's made of and what color it is and all that, then you've got to have a very big telescope uh, to gather enough light and especially to uh, separate out the light of the planet and a much, much, much brighter light from the star. But this is a subject that's opening up. And I think within 10 or 20 years, if life were widespread, we would have some evidence of it on some exoplanets orbiting nearby stars. Given that biology is such a difficult subject, given that insects themselves are, are so complex, does that mean that life on Earth is the consequence of the most remarkable coincidences, uh, almost impossible level of coincidence? 
Or would it be better to look at the chances of us existing in the way that we do by looking at the multiverse theory and the idea that there are parallel universes or infinite universes? So in, in the end, it was an inevitability that a planet such as us, ours, that was a giver of life or a platform for life would exist. Well, I mean, we, we don't know, except we can say that uh, if reality was actually infinite, then every combination occurs somewhere and many times. But I think if we stick within our universe where we can make observations, and actually in the case of planets around other stars, we can only really observe our local patch in the galaxy, the nearest uh, million stars, etc. cetera, um, then uh, I think we are going to be able to learn something if we can uh, gather enough light to see what color they are. Is there evidence of chlorophyll, which is a substance which is um, pervasive in vegetation, and uh, we just don't know yet, but we may know. Um, and uh, I think the key question is, uh, does life get started? But then there's a second question, which you just alluded to, which is that if life gets started, uh, then how inevitable is it that it evolves in the way that uh, life evolved on the Earth? And I think most people would, would say that it's um, not at all inevitable and that uh, life may evolve in a quite different way, in quite different creatures, or it might get stuck, just have insects and nothing else, uh, um, or not evolve into the kind of uh, biosphere that we have and in which uh, self-aware creatures evolve. So even if simple life is common, it's still a possibility that what we would call advanced or intelligent life could be very rare. Where do you think alternative life is most likely? Uh, I think it obviously makes sense uh, to look on the surface of planets like our Earth and get evidence of that from astronomy. But of course, it could be that there is uh, life in other places. For instance, within our own solar system, there are the uh, familiar eight planets and they have moons around them. And um, uh, there's a moon of, of uh, Jupiter called Europa and a moon of Saturn called Enceladus. And they're both covered in ice. And under that ice, there is an ocean. And many people speculate uh, that there could be something swimming in one of those oceans. Um, and there are space probes being sent to those locations in the next decade or two, which may be able to detect spray that's being thrown up through vents in the ice, etc., and see if there's evidence for anything organic. So that's a very exciting experiment. The reason that's exciting is that Supposing that there is some evidence of something alive in one of those locations, then it would tell us that life could not be a rare fluke. Because if this happened twice within our own planetary system, then we could straight away conclude it must exist in a billion places in our Milky Way. And that would be a momentous conclusion. And so that's why I'm very excited about the experiment being done to actually see if there's evidence for anything living um, on these uh, moons of the outer planets. Um, I'm not optimistic that there will be anything, but if if this were done, it would be crucially important because it would imply that uh, it had a separate origin. Uh, you might say, well, what about Mars, where we can go and make observations already using robots, and there may be some evidence for past life on Mars when it had more water, etc. Um, but that wouldn't quite clinch the important case because it's quite possible that um, life on meteorites could go from Mars to the Earth or from the Earth to Mars. We, we have some meteorites on the Earth which have come from Mars and vice versa. And so that wouldn't prove two independent origins. The reason I mentioned these 
these rather arcane outer solar system bodies is that it's fairly obvious that uh, life couldn't have gone from them to the earth or vice versa so if we find life out there that would be evidence of two independent origins within one planetary system around one star and that would straight away say that the galaxy was full of life your coming of age as a scientist coincided with the space age didn't it I'm curious to know whether you think we've fallen out of love with the idea as a species of putting human beings in space or onto planets, and how important or not you think it is for us to do precisely that, or is that a waste of money and a waste of time? Are we are we better off putting probes out there? Well, of course, I'm old enough to remember uh, Neil Armstrong's One Small Step on the Moon, which came only 12 years after the first Sputnik. So it was an amazingly uh, rapid progress in technology. And I remember then thinking, along with many other people, that it would only be another 10 or 20 years before there were footprints on Mars. But as it's turned out, of course, uh, that was the high point of human space exploration. Um, No one since 1972 has been beyond low Earth orbit. And uh, there is a possible revival, but uh, nothing's happened. And uh, uh, to a younger generation, um, human space flights beyond the Earth is uh, ancient history. Um, they know the Egyptians built pyramids. They know the Americans sent people to the moon. But these both seem uh, rather perverse national goals to produce these things. And, of course, the reason that the Apollo program was funded was through superpower rivalry to get there before the Russians. And when they'd beaten the Russians to the moon, uh, then the huge expenditure, which was 4% of the US federal budget, was obviously not sustained. Um, and that's that's one reason why there hasn't been uh, more exciting human spaceflight since that time. But there's another reason, uh, which is that robots have got better. And um, robots, of course, if you want to send them to the moon or certainly to Mars, a six-month journey, um, to send a robot... Um, to to the surface of Mars uh, is far easier than sending a human being who you've got to feed and keep safe for six months and, of course, bring back as as well. Uh, So the the, the advantage of robots as they get more sophisticated and are empowered by AI is getting bigger and bigger and a factor of hundreds or thousands in in cost difference between uh, sending robots to explore and sending humans. And the robots can also assemble structures more easily than humans. So uh, I have a book that came out last year called The End of Astronauts, which um, discusses the case for human space flights and argues that uh, robots can do all the practical things. But nonetheless, I think there's still a certain romance, obviously, in sending humans. But uh, I think that we should leave it to the billionaires, um, Messrs. Musk and Bezos, who are, as you know, launching people into low Earth orbit. Uh, and we should let them go further. And the reason for that is that if um, uh, the American government or the European Space Agency uh, sends people into space, it's got to look after them. Taxpayers won't want them to be exposed to very great risks. There's, I could document that. There's good evidence of that. And that'll make it much, much more expensive. Whereas there are people who'd be happy to go into space as an adventure, accepting very high risks, the people who go hang gliding or around the world solo sailing and things of that kind. In fact, um, Elon Musk has said he wants to die on Mars, but not on impact. Good luck to him. He's 51 years old now, so 40 years from now, maybe he can do it. So I think there is a possibility, and I rather hope that there will be uh, adventurers who will go to Mars, maybe with one-way trips. 
and this will happen by the end of a century, and that they'll be going in the spirit of the old explorers of Magellan and people like that, who didn't expect to come back safely, Captain Scott and and uh, in the present era, people like Sir Ralph Fiennes, who take huge risks. So there'll be people like that, and we can cheer them on, but they'll be going as an adventure. How important is the James Webb Space Telescope? And how much more do you think is there to come from, from that? How, how excited are you about its potential? It's a big step forward from uh, telescopes like the Hubble Telescope in space um, and from telescopes on the ground uh, because it uh, can detect much fainter objects. It's got a bigger mirror and it can look in the infrared as well as visible light. So it's doing two things. Uh, One is it's um, going deeper into space and therefore further back in time. So it's going to tell us how the first galaxies formed. Look at them when they're very young and maybe look back to a time before they existed and uh, see what their precursors were. And also, it's going to help us with um, looking for planets around other stars because the planets are very faint and the fact that the James Webb Telescope collects a lot of light and also um, is so well figured that it can give very sharp images, tiny, sharp spatial resolution. That means it can look at the planets. So I think it'll look at deep objects in space, young galaxies, but also it will help us to understand planets around other stars. Given the sophistication of a telescope such as the James Webb example, is there still a role for amateur astronomers in trying to help us understand the universe? Yes, there's a different role because one of the things that we're interested in is a a transient phenomena, when a star explodes, etc. And um, that could happen anywhere in the sky, uh, whereas big telescopes normally have a very narrow field of view. And so if we think about a supernova, which is stellar explosions, a lot of them are found by amateurs who are scanning the sky uh, in a way that professionals aren't. Uh, So that's one thing which amateurs can do. The other thing they can do is um, analyze and help to analyze large bodies of data to try and uh, classify the objects they find there. So I think there's a greater role for amateurs because the equipment that amateurs have now is much more sophisticated than in the past. It's not just uh, photographic plates. It's uh, solid state detectors and computer power and all the rest of it. So they can do far more than in the past. You're an advocate, aren't you, for dark skies? You, You want skies to be preserved in such a way that we can see what's going on out there. Where would you go in Britain? Give us some examples of places where you really can see a lot. Yes. Well, there are certain uh, dark sky areas in Britain. There's one in Northumbria. Uh, there's one in Galloway in Scotland. There's one in the Brecon Beacons. And uh, these are way away from streetlights, etc. And I support the case for trying to preserve these areas in darkness. And there are similar ones around the world. And I make this case not just for astronomers, because I, I would say that the dark night sky is part of our environment. Indeed, it's a part of our environment that's been shared by human beings throughout human history. They've defined the constellations and all that in ancient times and interpreted and wondered about it. And so it's rather sad if uh, young kids never see a dark sky. And of course, many of them never do. And does it, it's sad just as they never see a bird's nest, etc. So I think uh, it's not just astronomers who should care about dark skies. Just as, um, uh, to take another example, I'm not an ornithologist, but I'd miss it if there were no songbirds in my garden anymore. And similarly, you don't need to be an amateur astronomer to care about seeing a dark sky. So that's why um, I think it is good if we can preserve dark skies so that uh, everyone can see uh, the Milky Way and lots and lots of stars.
Just a sub-question of that. Is, is a dark sky a technical term or, or not? I mean, could there be a dark sky over other areas of the country that you haven't necessarily mentioned or even over London when there's a particularly clear night or does that not constitute a dark sky? No, because the um, uh, what makes what stops the sky being dark um, is um, is light being scattered back from the atmosphere, and so anywhere where there are street lights or uh, mm. built areas will never be be dark. You've got to be away from uh, street lights and floodlights and everything in order to get a dark sky. But is it a technical term? You mentioned, for example, the Brecon beacons. But if I were to say to you, I don't know, Berwyn Hills in Wales or Snowdonia in Wales. Yes. Could, could that constitute a black, a, a dark sky as well? Yes, it's, it's just that uh, you've got to have uh, an absence of artificial lights out to a radius of, say, 20 miles beyond the horizon. Otherwise, the uh, the light going upwards is going to uh, brighten the, the uh, sky and, uh, to some extent, make it harder to detect the faint stars. So, as you say, any, any region... Um, where there's no evidence of artificial light is, is good, but it's got to be quite a big region. Let me ask you briefly about space pollution. That, that it seems to me, to be a, a, a new problem or a new worry looming on the near horizon for astronomers, for physicists. Is there a risk that, that there are going to be so many satellites put up there that it's going to make your job as an astronomer more difficult? That, that's certainly true. It's going to make it difficult. Uh, not not just the, um, the the light from all these objects moving across the sky at different speeds, which are really artificial, um, but also the uh, the radio transmissions going down to the ground, uh, which affect radio astronomies, who are very strong in this country. Uh, so, so that's clearly uh, a problem. Uh, but there's another quite different concern we have about um, all these satellites, and that's that if they collide with each other or some of them explode, then they will uh, produce lots of debris. And um, even a, a fleck of paint moving at 18,000 miles an hour can damage delicate equipment in space. And so there's a serious risk that if um, there are more than just a few spacecraft which get destroyed in collisions with each other or something like that, then low Earth orbit, which is very important technologically for for the internet and for monitoring the climate, etc., may become unusable because there's so much debris there that uh, no satellite will be safe for a long lifetime without being hit. That's a serious problem. Are you optimistic that it can be solved? Well, uh, not particularly. It's going to require some uh, international agreements and also um, uh, prioritising the, the safety of uh, satellites so they don't explode and doing what one can to uh, uh, bring out of orbit uh, those that might otherwise cause a danger. How advanced are we in tackling the potential problem? And I say potential without really any understanding of how big a problem it, it might be, how remote a problem it is. But if it is a possible problem, the idea of a, an asteroid big enough to do damage to the Earth actually colliding with us, how advanced are we in our capacity to identify those asteroids in time and also then to do something about it, to deflect them in some way? Well, of course, when I say that I'm interested in uh, in risks to humanity, uh, then people assume that my big worry is um, asteroids of the kind that kill the dinosaurs, etc., um, And of course, that is a worry. But my main worry in that context is uh, um, the kind of disasters which are caused by humans, which are much more frequent now than they were in the past. Uh, the one good thing about asteroid impacts is they're no higher now than they were in the past. And also, we can 
predict how often they occur because um, we now have um, uh, data on most of the asteroids orbiting around in our solar system. And uh, it's becoming increasingly possible uh, to um, uh, work out their orbits and find out which of them um, are likely to get close enough to the Earth that we need to worry about an impact. Uh, so we can now um, observe most of the big ones and indeed uh, most of the ones down to about 50 meters across uh, and they can cause devastation in the city if they land there. So uh, we do uh, have a catalog of them and the important thing of course is can we do anything about it uh, apart from being warned and trying to escape to the other half of the earth before they hit. Um, and uh, there is some possibility of um, de deflecting them and there was a very interesting experiment um, just a few months ago um, where a uh, rocket was crashed into uh, an asteroid um, and uh, they were able to find out what happened and they found that its speed was changed a bit and that meant that uh, it was in principle possible to uh, to nudge the orbit of uh, something a long way away so that it would miss the Earth rather than hit it. Um, and so this test was, I think, very worthwhile and it means that it will be possible by the end of the century to actually protect ourselves against at least the small types of asteroids, which if they hit the Earth uh, would do at least as much damage as an H-bomb. Um, but of course, uh, the ones that kill the dinosaurs, um, they're several miles, miles across. And although in the movie, Bruce Willis did something about it, I don't think there will be very much chance of uh, deflecting that, but they are rare. Um, the chance is um, less than one in a million per year of something as big as that. You talked about the threat to, to humanity, other threats, man-made, human-made threats to humanity. Do you think science will destroy us or save us? Well, of course, I hope it will save us. And the uh, uh, title of my newest book is called If Science is to Save Us. And the main challenge, of course, is to uh, take cognizance of the fact that uh, science empowers us more for good, but also that therefore means that the downsides are more serious. Uh, misapplication of science can be very damaging. Um, individuals um, can cause massive damage, cascading globally even, by cyber attacks or engineered viruses and things like that. So I think the key thing is to uh, develop science in a way that uh, uh, allows us to use the huge benefits without which we couldn't exist in modern life, we couldn't feed 8 billion people, etc., uh, but avoid the uh, the growing downsides. And that's something which uh, um, I spent quite a bit of time thinking about now. And we have a group in Cambridge called the Centre for Studying Existential Risks, which is concerned to uh, uh, try and explore scenarios to um, deal scenarios which would be catastrophic and see how we can minimise their probability. And uh, I like to say that the stakes are so high that if we can reduce the likelihood by one part in a thousand we more than earned our keep and so there need to be more people doing these sorts of studies because the world is getting more dangerous from human-induced catastrophes because we're more crowded we're more empowered by technology you as an astronomer have a have a, an enormous sense of scale and so you can place humankind in, into a vast map and I, I wonder whether you think we could and should be doing more or much more to work together as a species to confront big issues, big problems, big threats, 
and how open is the scientific community of which you are a prominent part to working collaboratively across borders? Well, I think the scientific community has always worked across borders, you know, in the Napoleonic Wars, uh, there was still collaboration with France. And during the Cold War, the scientists in East and West used to meet at, at conferences, etc. So science has always been international. Um, but of course, um, uh, we need to regulate science in a global way. And of course, there are examples. Um, uh, there's the International Atomic Energy Authority, um, which does monitor all nuclear plant around the world. And there's a World Health Organization, of course, uh, which uh, um, has on its agenda trying to identify pandemics before they really spread. And I think we do need to strengthen those bodies and we need more. Uh, I think we need one to um, uh, deal with um, uh, dangerous uh, uh, pathogens um, and uh, constrain uh, the experiments that people do in labs. Uh, we also, uh, I think, need to have uh, ways of um, uh, ensuring that um, cuts in CO2 emission, which are uh, promised by different countries, uh, are actually implemented. And we also, I think, need to have international bodies uh, for the internet and uh, et cetera, because um, uh, it's very hard for national bodies to regulate the uh, global conglomerates uh, which dominate AI um, and uh, the internet. And so we do need more uh, international collaboration, not just among scientists for that, but uh, scientists themselves are always the leaders in international collaboration because uh, uh, the uh, protons and proteins are the same in all parts of the world. Three final quick questions then. One, what are you proudest of in your career as a scientist, as a researcher, as someone trying to contribute to our understanding of the world or indeed the universe and beyond? What what do you think is your single greatest? You've had such a distinguished career. You've been president of the Royal Society, you're a master of Trinity College, Cambridge. You, you were made a professor, you were, made, you were knighted, you're a, a member of the House of Lords. In terms of the science, what, are you, what do you think is your most significant contribution? Well, I think I've been very lucky uh, to be in a subject that's been developing fast. And I give young people the advice that they should go into a subject where new things are happening or new techniques. And then they could do what the old guys never got a chance to do rather than the problems that the old guys got stuck on. And so I was lucky to be in a subject which uh, was advancing fast when I started and fortunately still is. So it's good for young people still. And uh, I, I've really been part of lots of fascinating debates. Um, scientists comment on, I think my contribution has been uh, partly individual ideas, but also partly sort of stimulating the, the community. And that was my focus until I got to the age of 60. But then I felt I ought to sort of diversify a bit. And that's when I got a bit more involved in politics. I became president of the Royal Society and head of a Cambridge college, etc. So uh, my work thereafter has been uh, uh, on a slightly broader, uh, but less deep canvas, trying to understand other areas of science and getting a bit involved in politics. Exoplanets, the the, 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 uh, the development of our understanding of exoplanets, I think you described earlier, didn't you, as exciting. Mm. What, what's the most exciting development in astrophysics, in astronomy, during your professional lifetime? Well, my professional lifetime goes back to when we got the first evidence of the Big Bang in the 1960s. The first black holes were discovered about 1970. 
Um, and uh, so I've been lucky to be uh, active and following those subjects back then. But if you look at the most recent five years, uh, then I think the high points have been exoplanets um, and uh, a bit more detail about black holes. And um, I, I would say also uh, detecting gravitational waves. This is uh, something which um, uh, is a prediction of Einstein's theory and happens when the black holes form or two black holes merge. And this is an amazing technical achievement. And uh, I, I wasn't in any way involved in this, but uh, uh, this is now a, a new window on the universe and an amazing confirmation of Einstein's theory and amazing technology. Uh, the precision is equivalent to measuring something the thickness of a hair at the distance of Alpha Centauri. That's the precision. A distance of? Alpha Centauri, the nearest star. One part in 10 to the power 21. And that's an amazing technology. And that indicates how uh, it is the instrumentalists who are the heroes of most of astronomy. People don't always put science and beauty together, but my senses from your awareness of birdsong and your advocacy that we've spoken about for dark skies is that as well as being a scientist and a researcher, someone trying to understand things, you also have a deep aesthetic sense and just finally explain to us your appreciation of the beauty of what we can see through our telescopes and what we can see just through looking up at the sky as well. Well, of course, I'm a human being as well as an astronomer, so I, I do appreciate these things. Um, but, but I think it's true that um, the more one understands, the more one appreciates the mystery and run wonder. Uh, famously, um, uh, Blake said that Newton had destroyed appreciation of the rainbow, uh, whereas one of the things where I do agree with Richard Dawkins is that uh, you get more insight into the rainbow if you know what causes it. Uh, so the, the, there's a, a, a parallelism rather than a conflict between the uh, appreciation which is aesthetic and the um, appreciation uh, which is uh, scientific. And I think uh, one does appreciate how amazing these entities are and uh, how wonderful the biological world is in particular. Double helix, amazing. And, and I think we've done, we've done uh, all kinds of uh, amazing things to show the unity of the universe in deeper ways than we ever thought possible. I didn't ask you, did I, about, well, we talked briefly about the, the role of the Astronomer Royal, but I didn't ask you whether it was part of part of that role to, to meet the Queen regularly or, or, or at all, and whether you meet King Charles. Well, well, I, I, I did meet the Queen and I met Prince Charles, but not particularly in that context. Um, they've never asked for horoscopes. <laughs> and so I haven't met them in that context in particular, but of course I have had the privilege of meeting them in other contexts. Martin Rees, it's been a pleasure and a privilege to interview you. Thank you so much for answering my 20 questions. Your, your enthusiasm for your field and your desire to communicate it stands out, as, of course, does your enormous brain. So I'm, I'm hugely grateful to you. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for having me on your show.